And so, you know, on what basis can you believe? Well, we have these documents that speak of this guy named Jesus, and they, they certainly speak to the idea that he was dead and that he was risen again. And how can you really base your ideas on that? And, you know, you, you kind of come at it from, from an angle of his history, that uh, what would account for why a bunch of people who had seen something they had never seen before and be so convinced of it that they were willing to go to their deaths believing in it, and they weren't even out to raise money or to start a war or to mass an army or to build a library. They just simply um, walked by faith in one whom they had seen with their own eyes and decided that they would take that message wherever they went. And so that's a rather compelling argument. And um, I've used this quote from, from Pascal in other moments in sermons in that uh, he would say, the witnesses I most believe are the ones who get their throats slit. And uh, in the history of Christian um, martyrdom, there's plenty of those. And whereas that in no sense represents proof for the existence of God or of the deity of Jesus, they certainly do add a certain uh, compelling nature um, to considering that story. Um, I think, you know, the, the trying to understand the history behind what would give rise to people believing these things, I think one line of evidence that people account for is the, does the story that they find in the text, in, in the words of Jesus, in the life of Jesus, does that? have explanatory power for their own experience. Explanatory power is just a highfalutin way of saying, does what I find in that story of his life, does that seem to resonate or describe what seems to be true? Do When he speaks of something that is in us, that is dark and corrupt and, 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 and sorrowful and, and conflicted, and uh, does, does that... Do, when I think about my own heart, does that reveal something in me that I go, yeah, if, if I'm honest with myself, I feel that. And yet at the same time, do I, do I hear the same Jesus speak of those unto whom he speaks with a certain reverence and, and awe? And when he comes to the tomb of Lazarus in John chapter 11 and he's weeping there at the tomb, what does that reveal? That he has this great profound love uh, for one who he know and one who would succumb to death. And so it's the life of Jesus and the words of Jesus that I think um, are compelling unto me, among other reasons, for why I would give him, why I would, I would give to him a certain measure of credibility and authority. Um, I think a real important question that people look for is, that, that I think people have to grapple with at some point is, why is there anything? We, we take it as a given that there's a parking lot out there and there's a moon up in the sky and tomorrow morning the sun will rise and we just think, well, that's happened for a long time, so it's just happened. And until you back up and you ask yourself, why, why is that a given? Why, why do we think that that was inevitable? And, and just to sort of grapple with the fact, to stare up at the, at the stars in the sky and to ask yourself, are you, are you confident that we can account for that existence simply because of a remarkable uh, confluence of a set of uh, chemical reactions that led to all of this? You can and it may be the case, but I think just as plausible to that consideration of what you see up in the heavens and what you consider of your own self, that it's reasonable to think that there may be something behind it that has intention and intelligence. And when you, when you begin to think in those ways, I think um, evidence for the idea of something transcendent behind us is another line of evidence. Okay, I'm starting to get far afield, I think. Um. This other question, actually, a couple of people had um, asked it in a couple different ways, but um, one of them, if you become a Christian and then years later fall out of your faith 
um, like some of the stories he told of people that um, have now become secular um, in their faith. Are you still saved? Or what happens to those that were once believers but have now changed their thoughts and become atheists? What happens to them if they die? So how, what, how do you reconcile that? Excellent questions. I wonder if I might defer them to a little later in the series because they, they certainly get further down the road in terms of like, what does Jesus argue for? What does Jesus come for? What's his, what's his purpose? How does he see us? Again, those are important questions, and I, I would answer them right now. I just kind of want to stay within the concept of like, on, on what basis does anyone ground their existence? And um, so I'm, I'm passing on that one, not because I don't think it's important, but I think that there will be a, another talk in which it will be more pertinent to the conversation. Um, this other one, and I have quite a few coming in right now, so I'm reading these quickly and, and filtering through. Um, this one, though, there's a couple of threads with it. Uh, why is it that a God who loves us would leave us with so many questions? If he wants us all to be in heaven with him, why does he make it so difficult for so many people to believe? Great question. Great question. And I think, though, a question, and this is not me trying to be evasive, that question itself makes certain assumptions about reality. And I'm going to kind of piggyback off of what Keller said there about maybe two-thirds of the way through his talk, where he, he borrows that line of thought from Taylor about, why is it that about 500 years ago, you ask anybody in the street, you believe in God, they pretty much nod their head in some ways, whereas now, you know, you got to kind of kind of go down the line before somebody will say, yeah. So what is to account for that difference? And so he talks about this idea of background beliefs that in an earlier day, there was a certain sort of humility that people brought to the question about the nature of all things and the origin of all things. And on the basis of that humility, even in the midst of suffering, they wouldn't immediately leap to the, to the deduction that there just can't be a God. They were, they were humble enough to know and recognize that there was so much they didn't know and so much they couldn't account for that they wouldn't just sort of rule God out of hand. Whereas now, obviously, we've, you know, there's the, the Enlightenment and the Renaissance and the Industrial Revolution and you know, modernity has taken hold. And now we're in this technological age like no other day. And, and therefore, our, our leaps in, in knowledge um, is just astronomical. And so anyone 500 years ago would just look at us and go, amazing. They wouldn't even have a word for it. But, but when we come into that world in which everything just sort of seems natural, like it's just a matter of time before we're going to know exactly about quantum physics and we're going to be able to figure it all of that out. And now we've seen our first black hole, you know, with the far reaches of space. And so clearly we know so much that God becomes unnecessary to our equation. And so we just sort of, because we are, we're so convinced about so many other things that we were not convinced about prior, that naturally there can't be a God, and we have a good reason for why we think that. And as Taylor and Keller are arguing, that implies that you know a good reason why you couldn't believe. And so the question itself is assuming that there really just isn't a lot of good evidence out there for us to think about it. But that assumption is based upon a belief that, well, because I know so much about the inner workings of humanity and the universe, that I, I can't think of any good reason why God would allow suffering in this world. And so there's just not enough evidence to believe in him. I, I think that that whole idea of background beliefs is, is coming into play there. And so you just can't, 
um, start with the premise that there isn't a lot of good evidence out there because you'd have to ask yourself, well, what would constitute real evidence? Uh, if you just, you know, again, it's, it's no proof. It's not a, a, mean, a reason to be certainty. But why is it that 2 billion people got up on a Sunday this week and all went to their respective locations and sang to this guy named Jesus? Is it simply they needed an emotional crutch? Are you going to reduce it to that? Or are there all sorts of reasons why any number of diverse people from all different kinds of ethnicities, from all across the scale of the socioeconomic background and academic world, why do they all hold to that? Why does that not considered evidence in your world? Again, it's, we, that, that's a great question that would, I would kind of want to get a follow-up, que- or a follow-up question to in order to kind of ascertain what would constitute genuine evidence. Um, I do think there are evidences for why uh, Jesus is worthy of, of, of consideration and worship. And again, as we get down, more down the road through what Keller has to say, some of those lines of evidence will become more compelling. Next week, he's going to talk about meaning. Where do we find our meaning? And he will argue, not to steal too much of his thunder, that if you say that the whole world is just the pure product of blind chance, then the idea of meaning is your own illusion, or you have to create it for yourself. It's just something that you have to conjure up. Well, if that's the truth, then as he said earlier, there's no place for human rights. There's no place for human, universal benevolence. And so you kind of work yourself backwards from, from things that you consider to be obvious and self-evident and ask yourself, why do you believe that? And why is that your evidence? Okay, I'll stop there. Uh, so far tonight, I haven't heard mention of the work of the Holy Spirit to enable any of us to believe. Are we saying we have power to convince others to believe apart from the Spirit or that anyone takes up faith and lays it down individually? Oh, that's a good question. And, and Okay, I'll break my own rule here. And that means I'll probably have to come back to the earlier question that I deferred on. Obviously, the, there's a, that's a doctrinal question here, and, and for those that are not as familiar with Christian doctrine, um, one element of Christian doctrine is to say that belief in God or in the Son, who's known as Jesus, that that belief is not something that you simply sort of are convinced of by way of plausible argumentation, and then you just sort of flip a switch in your brain, and then everything sort of, uh, the skies break open, and, and you become clear that, according to Christian doctrine, uh, no one comes to belief on their, unless they are drawn by God himself. And that one becomes uh, called to, to believe in that because of something that works from outside them to work within them. And so um, underlying this question is, well, is belief just a matter of, I, I got my 14 reasons for why it's plausible to believe in God, and if I get you know 10 out of 14, that's a pretty good grade, I'm in. Um, Sure, there's a place for plausibility, there's a place for evidence, there's a place for reasoning about our faith, but in the end, coming from a Christian perspective, no one comes to believe unless God is at work in, in, in labeling them to believe. So it's, uh, it's not as if God uh, sort of rewires the brain in such a way that we kind of, um, he overrides our will and, and, and we work in that direction, but there is an acting upon any human person that comes to believe that is accounted for by God, and therefore belief, while it it rests upon things that you think about or can't think about because you reach the limits of your reason, um, it is still, uh, again, from a Christian perspective, something that God acts upon you in order for it to come to fruition. So 
if I answered that question, I better go back to that one about those who believe and then who don't and what happens to them. And here, um, this will not be a complete answer, but this will be an answer. I believe God is just, and I believe God is merciful, and I believe God has disclosed himself in that way unequivocally. And I believe in Jesus, God has demonstrated both his commitment to justice and his commitment to mercy in a single and the same moment. And therefore, do I have an answer for what becomes of everyone at this moment? No. But I know that if God is just and God is merciful, and I trust in that justice and that mercy, then I can be assured that however he acts, it will be those two things, just and merciful. And I'll leave it at that point. I know that that may not be the the clearest or most comprehensive answer you might have been seeking, but I don't want to just sort of leave it there and pretend it's, we got to wait till later. How has experience and reason changed throughout history and how one comes to faith? Is it more important now than it used to be? So I'm tapping into my, full, my I'm tapping into my sophomore year of college philosophy here. So good luck. But, at least in terms of Western civilization, and I, I don't mean to make that sound like it doesn't, wasn't true of other civilizations, but in Western civilization, most people would uh, rest their beliefs, their sense of order and framework on, on four different sense, sources of authority. Revelation, reason, experience, and I'm feeling like the guy during the presidency. What was the fourth one? Um, revelation, reason, experience, I forgot the fourth one. <laughs> Obviously, in a day in which uh, people would speak of holy books and the idea of revelation of God ordering um, and, and authoring um, his intentions for the world, um, that there was an earlier day in which the very idea of revelation was more revered, was more accepted, and didn't require you to be convinced of the idea that God had spoken. In our day, clearly, the idea of revelation is held with great deal of suspicion. A great deal of suspicion. And therefore, in the absence of believing that revelation or, or, or God authoring some sort of um, insight or, or a window into reality, with that, if, if you move that slider down, then other sliders have got to move up to compensate for what you think is now a lack. And so in our day, reason and experience are kind of the, the overriding um, bases upon which one makes value judgments. And so... Um, Experience and reason kind of almost predominates these days. And so, and now experience, I think, especially in pop culture, is kind of at the top of the list. Uh, you hear phrases like, you be you, uh, follow your bliss, uh, do your own thing, um, uh, sorry, Outback Steakhouse, no rules, just right, right? Um, all of those ways in which this is who I am, I was born this way, I know who I am, the most important thing I can do is assert my authority and my identity. And so my experience prevails. And that's, that's in a lot of ways where people are because they're untethered from any idea of anything grander than their own perspective on things. Um, but as Keller says in that first talk, if you take experience to its logical conclusion, Hitler followed his own heart. Everybody follows their heart. And the question is, can my heart ever be wrong? If you think it can't, you haven't lived long enough. At some point, 
you will want somebody to say, you idiot. Do you know what you're thinking? But it's my experience. Great. Other things have to inform your framework. And, and therefore, what has to enter into that? If you, if you will insist that only reason and experience can prevail, at some point you're going to have to ask yourself, then on what basis can anybody say that they have a right? On what basis can anyone say that they have dignity? To borrow those terms is to, like you said, smuggle in ideas of some bigger truth that we're all responsible and accountable to um, in order to say that you have a right that no one else can trample on or you have a dignity that nobody else can take away from you. Thursday night, last Thursday night at UNC Asheville, uh, Brian Stevenson was here. He's a, he's a lawyer. He's a renowned um, Harvard Law pr- uh, professor who has written a book called Just Mercy, and he's all about criminal justice reform. And one of the one of the quotes that I've harvested from his book that I've used in multiple sermons and talked to many people is this. He says this, you are more than the worst thing you've ever done. You are more than the worst thing you've ever done. That's what he says to everybody he can speak to. Well, the only reason he can say something like that is because he believes that there's something transcendent that, would, that can argue for that. Otherwise, it's just him saying something that we'd like to believe but can't really justify why we do believe it. Am I even answering the question there? about how experience and reason come into the question of faith? You think so? Oh, yeah, okay. Sorry. I have to admit, I'm in and out reading yeah, yeah, these yeah, questions. Yeah, yeah, they all decided to come in after we got up here and okay. started doing this, So, or many of them. Yeah. Um, but we do have someone out there helping out and said the fourth pillar uh, of truth is discovery. I trust you. So... Might be science. I mean, it might, re, there's reason and there's science. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Testable theories, and so yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what was um, the third thing? Right. Okay. And this will probably be um, one of our last questions with mm. our time tonight. Yeah. But um, I think a good one that's personal um, is: your faith and belief in God cons- consistently strong, or do you experience times when it is stronger and weaker? If oh. the latter, what do you do to bolster your faith during periods of weakness? Man, thank you for asking that question. I'll, I'll borrow the, the little metaphor that Keller uses there from the end of his talk. And then when it comes to faith, it's not about the quality of your faith, but what it's attached to, what the object of your faith is. And so um, I, don't, I have no qualms in confessing to you that there are plenty of moments when the idea of the resurrection seems patently absurd. I haven't seen it happen. I don't know of anybody that it's happened to around in my life or even in the last 500 years or before that. So the idea of believing in one who was both God and man who was risen from the dead, to think that he was really risen from the dead, that's an article of faith. And there are moments um, in which it just seems like, are you kidding? I stake my whole life on that? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend my entirety advocating for that idea? Really? Sure. There are moments in which it's like this. It's like a sine wave. And that's on a good day. But... Um, what helps me then not to, to buy the farm or, or, or to sell the goods on a belief like that is to, to believe this. It's not about how I'm feeling in a given moment or what I'm thinking in a given moment. It's, it's kind of, we're not in a sprint here, we're in a marathon. And I've been reading a, a theologian a lot more recently named George MacDonald, who was a Scotsman, um, as I've told some of our 
uh, people in a sermon recently, he had two children that actually uh, lived in Asheville for about seven years back in the 1890s. One of them was the headmaster of Ravenscroft School. But George MacDonald was a pastor, he was a theologian, and he was the most influential person in C.S. Lewis's life. And I'm reading just sort of these excerpts from some of his writings, and he says, when it comes to dryness of belief, we all have it. And we all sometimes expect that our feelings will just maintain this sort of consistent, steady um, uh, way in which we just, like, we're, we're really good, everything's fine, everything's fine, I really believe, 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 and then it falls. And he goes, look, as surely as man shall not live by bread alone, neither shall man live by feelings alone. When you're hungry, you're a different person than when you're fed. When you haven't slept in days, you're a different person than when you've slept. When your thyroid is shot, you're a different person when your thyroid is working. And in every one of those instances, in moments like that, you think, yeah, benevolence oversees all things. I doubt it. Therefore, in that ebb and flow of both feeling and trusting in confidence and diffidence or, or concern and doubt, what do I do? I kind of run back to the story and I have to refresh my memory about what he says. And I have to, be, I have to take my doubts to God. It's this ironic thing, right? If, you, if in that moment you're, you're kind of doubting he's there or doubting that he's good or doubting that he understands, Scripture would say I don't run and, and, and hide my doubts in a corner. It's like I, I voice them. I say, I don't get you right now. I don't get this at all. I don't understand. But I do have reasons to trust you. And so I have to kind of refresh my memory of that faithfulness in the past. And that's why I think in some ways that's why he tells the people who do consider him to be Lord who, to come every week, <laughs> to, to hang around with the people. Because uh, when Jesus says to us, when he teaches us to pray, he says, Our Father, he could have said, My Father who art in heaven, but he said, When you pray, pray Our Father. Because faith is a communal sport. And um, so I come to be among them as well to help me in, in seasons of dryness and sorrow and despair. And that's how I face those moments in which there's an ebb and flow. I think, I think that ebb and flow is true of everyone. I don't think we're all the same. I think we all possess unique temperaments and experiences and backgrounds that can account for some of those differences and, and moments of either great confidence or great despair. But in my own story... I can, I can speak to that ebb and flow and, and speak to some of the disciplines that I go back to to kind of refresh me. It's 8 o'clock, and you've done well to sit, and I'm grateful for it. And I know that this represents maybe something unlike you've ever done before, and it required a lot of mental energy, and I would just say stick with it to encourage you in it. Feel free to ask questions. If there was a time, that if there was a, a chance you didn't get to ask a question tonight, I'll stick around up here at eight o'clock uh, after 8 o'clock and talk. Or if you want to send in questions to the email address that's at the bottom of the page, you can do that too. Anyway, feel free to stick around if you like. Thank you for being here, and um, we'll see you next Wednesday.